0: Any straight pool player in the world would leap at this break shot. This is the game. This is it. He's he's got a shot. I think Jose's made a mistake here. If he makes the one, he's going to get out. He's also got a block, a helper. If he undercuts
1: the one, it's going to go right in off the 12. This is the 1996 U.S. Open one-pocket tournament in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In case you didn't know, or you couldn't tell, One pocket is pool. It's really difficult pool. In one pocket, you have to sink all the balls in the same pocket on the table. It requires a lot more skill than nine ball or straight pool. And it isn't a game for beginners.
0: I'll never forget it. I drove 12 straight hours to uh, Detroit, Michigan for this tournament. And I'd saved up like 2,700 bucks.
1: That's Scott Frost. And even in 1996, when Scott was only 21 years old, he was no beginner. He was the pride of Des Moines, Iowa, the king of his local pool room.
0: And my nickname was the Go-Off Kid from Des Moines. That was the name I, uh, I earned for the first probably year, year and a half, two years of playing pool because it didn't matter who came through, it didn't matter who I played.
1: The Go-Off Kid spent his every waking minute in the pool hall, practicing, learning, and gambling with anyone who'd give him action. And like any good pool room gambler, he eventually decided to take his act on the road. He'd show up at the US Open, and if he couldn't win some money in the tournament, he'd surely make a nice score for himself in side action. And as soon as he walked into the room, he found himself a mark, or at least a mark found him.
0: This old man comes up and asks me to
1: play. Scott sized up the old man and told him to rack him. They played and played and played.
0: Long story short, he busts me. I go broke in like four hours. I drove 12
1: hours for this tournament last five days. Dejected, Scott got back in the car and headed back towards Des Moines. As he drove, he wondered how it all went wrong. He could beat every mope that walked through the door back home. But he couldn't beat some old man who could barely lean across the table to shoot. Was it nerves? Was it the money? Or was it that the old man was actually better than him? Scott resolved to get better. He worked harder than ever before. He took on mentors. He studied. He ate, drank, slept, and breathed pool. And he eventually got good enough to go out on the road for real. He would spend years on the road gambling on pool for a living. Burning up the blacktop in the final days before cell phones and the internet would make it impossible to hustle pool on the road ever again. But before he finished, he would win millions of dollars. He would go on to win dozens of tournaments, including a number of national titles, and even eventually win the U.S. Open One Pocket Tournament in 2005. And he'd cross paths again with the old man who nearly broke his spirit and ended his career before it even started. He'd learn that old man's name, or at least what he was known by in the world of pool. Cornbread Red, the greatest money player in the history of pool. And without even meaning to, on that day in Kalamazoo in 1996, Cornbread Red had passed the gauntlet on to the man who would eventually take his place. This is the story of Scott the Freezer Frost, the last great American pool hustler. From the Ringer Podcast Network, my name is David Hill, And this is Gamblers. Gamblers is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under, props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. Also, there are more ways to cash out. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. Check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER, or in West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT, or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Scott Frost grew up in the 1980s in Des Moines in an idyllic situation. His father was the CEO of a regional bank. His house had an indoor swimming pool.
0: had pretty much what you could call a dream childhood. Everything was beautiful um, until probably around 14 years of age. My parents got divorced and, and things changed dramatically at that point. My dad would get up at 4 a.m. and be at work by 5 a.m. I, I remember that clearly. And my mother, you know, she took care of us. But she started to drink quite a bit. She liked to drink. She was out later at night uh, with friends. And it was probably only a matter of time till stuff didn't work out in that direction.
1: As a teenager, Scott grew rebellious. He was a two-time All-State point guard. But during his junior year, he missed a practice and got into an argument with his coach.
0: We're in the gym, but we're walking out the doors to get on the bus. And Coach Smith yelled, embarrassing me in front of everybody. He said, Frost, what do you think you're doing? I said, Coach, I'm just getting on the bus, going to the game. He goes, you're not going with us. And basically told me I couldn't ride because I missed one practice. I lost my temper. I threw my gym bag at him. I whipped it as hard as I could, and I just walked out. Ironically, as I walk out, I see a friend of mine that wasn't in sports, and you could say he was a little bit more of a misfit, and we end up taking the bus to go to his house, and we had to catch another bus about two miles down the road for the last leg to his house. Well, at the second bus stop, there's a pool room, there's a pool hall called Encounters. And uh, he tells me, uh, When are we going there? And I'm like, we're not old enough. We can't go in there, and we end up, Mustering up the courage, and we go inside. We walk in the front door, and it was just the strangest thing. I've never played pool in my life. I've never, I didn't even know what pool was, really. But next thing I know, the the only guy sitting at the bar turns around and says, you guys gamble.
1: Scott had never played pool in his life, let alone gambled on it. The poor bastard was right-handed, but he held the cue in his left hand. Scott was fired up from the fight with his coach, so he didn't back down. He played the mysterious stranger, and he was no natural. He got his ass kicked.
0: So the guy beats me out of $22. And at that time, he was probably 23, 24, and his name was Tom. We still talk to this day. He was a professional golfer, and he was a hustler, <laughs> and uh, he, he hustled me, but. It lit a fire inside of me, and and that's where a whole new path, you could say, took off in my life. I never touched a basketball since that day.
1: Scott wanted his $22 back, so he returned to Encounters to Practice every single day. Soon enough, he was addicted to the atmosphere of the pool hall. For the next year of his life, he'd hang around and shoot pool until his 10 p.m. curfew. But even that eventually wasn't enough. He needed more.
0: I had a dummy, or what it was was a Halloween mask. And so I would jump out my window, and I'd have Tom pick me up at like 10.30 every night. I'd go to bed at 9.45 or so, lights out by 10, 10.15, and I'd be ready to go to the pool room.
1: Scott was just a kid, not even technically old enough to be allowed to be in the pool hall. But the regulars at encounters immediately took a shine to him. It could have been that he was a curiosity. Or it could have been something else. It could have been that Scott was an easy spot to make a few bucks. Anything
0: I had in my pocket, you know, my father had money and my mother, you know, they would give me 20 or 40 bucks a day if I needed it for lunch at school. And I just wouldn't eat. It didn't matter who came through. It didn't matter who I played. I couldn't beat him, but I was fearless. I knew that When they beat me, it would hurt, but I'm soaking up everything that they did on the table. And I was like a sponge. But I had to find a way to get money. This was a problem, because I couldn't play for fun. I realized that playing for fun really did nothing for me.
1: Scott was losing money left and right, chalking it up to the price of tuition for an education and pool. But as a teenager without a job, it was hard for him to get his hands on the kind of money he needed to play the better players. One day, while looking around his ritzy country club neighborhood, he had an idea.
0: I noticed my next door neighbor's garage open and they had a golf cart in there with two brand new sets of Ping Zings or Ping Golf Clubs on the back of it.
1: Scott started boosting golf clubs from the homes around his subdivision. And he lived on a country club golf course, so there was no shortage of supply. He started fencing them through Tom, who sold them out the back of Nevada Bob's. He reckons he stole over a hundred sets of golf clubs by the time he turned 18.
0: Basically, on my 18th birthday, my family and I were going on a vacation. Everybody's in the living room, everybody's excited, and uh, the phone rings. My mom answers it, she hands it to me. She said, somebody for you, and I say, hello. And I'll never forget the call. He goes, how are you doing, Mr. Frost? I said, I'm good. How are you? And he goes, this is Detective Bogle. And I'm about ready to have a knock-down-your-door party with 40 of my best officers. Look out your front window.
1: They had been on Scott for a while, but they waited for him to turn 18 before they moved on him. On his 18th birthday, they charged him with 12 felonies. His father hired a good lawyer who helped him walk by doing just a year of community service.
0: And somewhere along those lines, my parents found out I played, wanted to play pool, and you know, but they didn't know I was sneaking out at night. But when this happened, he realized how desperate I was to have money to go play. So what he did for me was bought me a pool cue business.
1: Scott's dad figured if pool was his passion, he should channel that passion into something productive and the business was lucrative. He'd buy cues wholesale, and he'd sell them right in the pool room at a profit.
0: It wasn't a month later that this road player had come through town, and come to find out his name was Richie Richardson, who was, in his day, one of the top one-pocket players in the country. Well, he'd come through town, and gosh, it's tough to actually talk about some of this, because I haven't revisited this in a long time, but I thought I was a one-pocket player. I thought I was, like, great... And I was terrible. But he would just barely beat me every game. He took all my cash. I had like three or 4000 on me. And then uh, I started putting up queues. Uh, and I'd ask him how much money he'd put up for this queue for this game. So I'd say I had a Mucci or a McDermott. That's a queue people can relate with. Say so I had a $500 McDermott. And he would tell me he'd put up 350 And I'd say, okay. So I'd put the queue on the table next to us, the pool table next to us, and we'd play that game. I'd lose that game by like a ball. And I kept thinking, gosh, I know I can beat this guy. I'm close. And in all reality, I probably needed a big spot. Like, I probably needed a big, big, big handicap.
1: Are there people in the pool hall that you're friends with that are watching this? I mean, none of your friends are pulling you aside and saying, hey, man.
0: You couldn't stop me. You just couldn't stop me. I, I wouldn't listen to anybody. I was pretty sure that Don McCoy, the owner of the pool room, starting to feel bad for me or or you know he knew that my desire was outweighing anything else and i had a lot of natural talent and i was getting to the level where all these locals they really couldn't beat me he saw that i took that big loss he had heard about my loss at the uh, legends of one pocket where i drove up there and had to drive straight back and i don't know how this happened but one day he finally tells me um I tell you what, if you're interested in doing this, I'll play you some $10 a game. We can start at noon every day because the porn would be slow.
1: Don McCoy owned Encounters, but he was once a well-known pool professional and respected by many of the top players in the world. Even though he was past his prime, he still had a lot he could teach Scott. So for six hours a day, they played each other heads up, no handicap, for $10 a game. At the end of a year, Scott was down $4,700 and Don let him settle for 3000
0: And it was the best 3000 I ever spent in my life.
1: Scott started going back to tournaments, except now his goal wasn't to win the whole thing and bust every player who offered him a game. Now he just wanted to make it a day without going broke. Then two days. Then try to last the whole tournament and make enough to pay for his hotel room. It wasn't long before Scott started to turn the tables on his teacher
0: then in year two, he ends up losing money. He ends up quitting. He got pretty frustrated. I really didn't know how good I was. But I know that there was like maybe three people on the planet that could beat Don McCoy. And I'm playing with him. So he's really not the favorite at this point. So I knew that I had the potential to, to do some real damage at this point. And that's when I started planning my first attack
1: the entire time scott had been traveling to tournaments keeping a low profile and trying not to go broke he had also been laying the groundwork for his ultimate plan scott knew that the way to make a killing at the game of pool wasn't to be the best player in your local pool room or even to win a bunch of tournaments in those days the way to make a killing was still the same as it had been for the last half century you had to go out on the road and hustle people scott wanted to play the road So he created a list of potential opponents. Some of them were people he knew he could beat that probably saw him as weak. Some of them were just players who had pissed him off.
0: There was this guy named Tom Carabasas from Chicago, and he was a decent player. He was not a bad guy, but he was a very brash guy, and he kind of uh, embarrassed me. I can't remember exactly what happened in a tournament. So he was on my list, right? Uh, Somebody had told me, this guy has money. You start out cheap, and he'll end up going off behind it. So my plan was to go to Chicago, ask him if he wants to play some $50 one pocket. I had no real money, but I knew I could build my bankroll going to this first spot. And then I had several spots after that. And it literally took me two and a half, three hours. Like I, I just destroyed this guy and I wanted to destroy him. My plan was once I got $2,000, I could go to this black pool room and play a guy named Ike Reynolds. And in this black pool room, it was thriving with bookmakers, pimps, and, I mean, just unbelievable cash in this place.
1: If Scott wanted to play Ike Reynolds, he'd need to play for $500 a game. And Scott only had about $2,000. So he had enough to lose four games to Ike before he'd be hitchhiking back to Des Moines. It wasn't much of a bankroll, but he intended to make the most of it. He had a plan. He walked into Red Shoes Billiards in Chicago wearing a bunch of gold chains and acting cocky, telling everyone about how rich his parents were and how good he was at pool, putting on a big show trying to look like a sucker. And he tells Ike Reynolds, the best player in the room, he wants to play for $500 a game. And Ike took the bait.
0: Well, there was like three or four of those guys, like, in this pool room. And then there was the bookmakers. And then there was the dope dealers. Here's what they would do. When it was my break, the most I got to bet was 500 You alternate breaks. It's customary. But when Ike broke, I would
1: get sometimes up to three grand bet. And they would jump on and jump off. What this means is that as Scott and Ike played... The rest of the guys in the pool room would offer to bet Scott that he would lose whenever it was Ike's break, which is actually not very cool. That's like betting on a tennis player only when it's their serve. Common pool room etiquette says that if you're gonna bet, you're gonna bet every game, not just when your player had the break. But Scott was looking to make a score, and not to make any trouble. This wasn't his turf, and he didn't have a single friend in the room. So, he took their bets.
0: So I just had a notepad, and I took all bets. Once I built that five hundred a game up to like five grand in my pocket, it was go time. I started betting two grand a game, fifteen hundred a game, eight hundred a game, four thousand a game.
1: Scott Frost, the go off kid from Des Moines, was in the roughest pool room in the city of Chicago, and was betting against the entire room. He walked in with two thousand dollars in his pocket, and was now betting four thousand a game.
0: And what was ironic about this is it was the best time of my life. I was a showman, right? Like, I was pretty entertaining. I wasn't quiet. I was powerful with my game. And if somebody ran their mouth to me, I could give them the talk right back, probably times 10. I I just had this ability to talk and talk good. I had more one-liners than Carter's Got Pills, man. And uh, they'd lose their money, but they'd be laughing. And, and smiling, like truly laughing and smiling, like entertained. These guys weren't blowing their last 5,000. I'm talking, these guys were like the biggest pimps in Chicago, man. I'm talking like, this is where they all came to hang out every day, went before they hit the streets or after they hit the streets. This was small money to these guys. This is where I think that I don't even know if I'm religious. I mean, some of the things that have happened in my life and people I've lost, but this is where I think that there's some sort of a higher power or a bigger meaning in life. Because just from the very beginning, even the day Tom beat me, yeah, I wasn't a good pool player. I'd never played pool before, but the charisma and the talk and the hustle was always in me. And I feel like I feel like it was just meant to be. I was never scared. It was really weird.
1: Everyone had a grand old time playing pool with Scott until 4 in the morning. When the game broke up, he was up $42,000.
0: Now, I do remember leaving. and It was pitch dark, and maybe this was an all-night pool room. It was maybe 4 in the morning. I was scared to death. But I had to trust somebody. And I actually had one of the bookmakers that I had beaten out of seven or 8,000 walk me to my car because he had a gun. And that bookmaker and I became friends. So from Chicago, I go to St. Louis. And at this time, Joe Wolford was probably in his mid-30s, and he had a lot of money.
1: Joe Wolford was a player who had beaten Scott out of $1,200 at a tournament two years before. So he'd made it onto Scott's list. And Scott knew that Joe played Ike even, meaning neither player gave each other a handicap, and that Ike beat Joe most of the time. So Scott figured he could easily beat Joe straight up without a spot. And since there's no way Joe's heard about Scott's score against Ike in Chicago yet, Scott could probably even get Joe to give him a two-ball handicap.
0: So when I walked in with pocket full of money, I always had this move. I'd go to the bar, and I'd order a bottle of water, maybe some chips or something, and I, it was an intentional move. I'd make sure I was safe, but I, as I'd pull my money out, I'd drop like ten or $15,000.
1: Intentionally showing a whole bunch of money to a mark is called putting a flash on them.
0: So back in the day, if you put a flash on somebody, it's really hard for their ego not to get the best of them and, and try and get that money.
1: Joe and Scott play for a thousand a game, with Joe giving Scott 10 to 8, meaning Scott only had to make eight balls before Joe could make 10, a big handicap. Scott wins 23,000, another name crossed off the list. After Scott gets back to Des Moines, the word was out among sharps that the go off kid had made some big scores. And in case you're wondering how professional pool hustlers are made, well, it truly takes a village. Every town in America, even the town where you live right now, has a top pool player. Someone who's the king of the local pool hall that nobody else can beat. But back in the day, every town also had a steer man. And a steer man is someone who puts the word out to road gamblers about the local pool hall kings and how good they were, what their strengths and weaknesses were, what kind of stakes they like to play for, the full scouting report. A steer man would reach out to a road gambler and offer to put them together with these local champs for a cut of the profits. And after Scott's score, he started getting calls from steer men around the country. One of them calls him and tells him about a big score down in Ocala, Florida.
0: And there was this pool room called Big Daddy's. And in Big Daddy's, there was this guy named Tony Baloney. So my whole goal was to get down with Tony Baloney. Now we knew that this process was gonna take some time. It wasn't like this guy wasn't stupid, right? He actually owned a bunch of Italian restaurants there in town and he he was a connected guy. He was probably pushing seven years old, but he gambled like a madman. And if you could get him down and beat him, you could win a lot of money.
1: Scott and his steer man hang around Big Daddy's for four or five days and get Tony Bologna used to seeing them. And Scott doesn't bullshit Tony either. He's straight with him about how good he is because he figured if he could make a game with Tony and beat him, and he was honest about how good he played, he'd have a lot better chance of being paid than if he tricked Tony into thinking he was worse than he really was. The problem with that approach was it meant that when he finally did get a chance to negotiate a game with Tony, he'd have to give up a lot of weight.
0: I was given Tony baloney 9 to 6. That means I had to make 9, Tony had to make 6, but I was also giving him something called the scratches don't count. That means that Tony could push the cue ball anywhere he wanted at any time. The problem with that was that I didn't know how to defend against giving a guy his scratches don't count. I've never played this game before.
1: Scott was completely snake bit. He dropped the first six games, and he didn't think there was any way he could win with this handicap. He only had about $7,000 on him, so he was nearly bust. He went over to his partner to tell him he wanted to quit, and they agreed to take their last $1,000 and head back north.
0: As I turn around to go shake Tony Bloney's hand, I turn around and he had already broken the balls, and he scratched.
1: Scott had given Tony the scratches, meaning he could miss the object ball whenever he wanted. But when Tony put the cue ball in the pocket, it had to come back out and be put on the table somewhere, which was a huge advantage for Scott. He looked back at his partner and told him, we have to play.
0: Mind you, we have one barrel left. If I lose this game, we got $200 to get back to Detroit from freaking Florida. Well, this is just a true and amazing story. Uh, We played for 76 straight hours from that moment.
1: Let me do the math for you. That's three whole days. No stopping, no sleeping.
0: And when that 76th straight hour was up, I was up 86,000. It got so bad that this guy, we were playing like 8,000 a game. It got so bad that this guy was shooting at my pocket all the time. Like he was delirious. Looking back now, I'm 44. It's lucky that the guy lived. Uh, His legs were black and blue.
1: This wasn't going to end well. Word got to Tony's sons and they showed up to stop the match. They ended up rushing Tony Baloney to the hospital. I'm sure he was dehydrated. He was in the hospital a week. More after this. Add a little excitement to your sports watching experience by betting on all the action on FanDuel Sportsbook this football season. There's a reason why FanDuel is America's number one sportsbook. Their app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique, fun bet types like same game parlay, and exclusive always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And if you win, they even get you your winning safely in as little as 24 hours. Right now, FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Just place a bet on any game, and FanDuel will refund you up to $1,000 back if you don't win your first bet. Seriously, there's no strings attached. Just place any bet you want. If you win, you keep the cash. If you lose, you'll get your entire bet up to $1,000 back in site credit. I live in New York, but if you ever see me in New Jersey on a Sunday morning on the platform of the Hoboken Path station looking intently at my phone, I'm either mad about something I read on Twitter or I'm getting my NFL bets in for the day before I head back across the border for kickoff. If you see me there this weekend, I'm probably betting on the Raiders against the Chiefs because they're playing in Vegas, and everyone knows that in Vegas, the house always wins. If you do bet, make sure to check out FanDuel's same-game parlays as well. If you've never tried FanDuel Sportsbook, what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started and be sure to sign up with promo code GAMBLERS so they know I sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code GAMBLERS. 21 plus and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Iowa, and Tennessee. First online real money wager only. Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See sportsbook.fanduel.com for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee, or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Scott's legend grew even further from there. One score after the next, he was starting to build quite the bankroll. The flashy gold chains weren't just part of the act anymore.
0: I had two cars. I had a Suburban and a new Cadillac and a boat. I had probably a hundred and some thousand dollars in assets that were paid off in cash. So
1: for a kid, that's not bad. They stopped calling Scott Frost the go-off kid from Des Moines. Now, he was the freezer.
0: And then I would say, what was I, 22 to 23, and I got a call from the best money player in the world at the time, and his name was James Walden out of Oklahoma City. He said, Freezer, I think we'd be a great team.
1: James Walden had a reputation as being the best money nine ball player in the country, which means Scott was probably now seen as the top money one pocket player. If they partnered up and combined their bankrolls, they could take on anyone. Scott didn't hesitate to jump in the car and drive to Oklahoma. But while Scott had become a street smart, tough as nails hustler in the pool room, he quickly learned when he got to Oklahoma that outside of the pool room, he was just somebody else's mark.
0: So I call this frickin', I call an escort. I can't believe I did this, right? This is the first time I ever called an escort. I call an escort, and she robs me. We get done. I pass out. I wake up, and all my money's gone. She robs me. I'm in Oklahoma City, (laughs) so it was just terrible, but it was funny.
1: James and Scott hit the road together, and their first stop was Houston, Texas, which had long been the gravitational center of the pool universe, with maybe more pool rooms per capita than any other city in America, which is why it was so incredibly unlucky that the first pool room they walked into, they ran smack dab into the last guy they wanted to see.
0: We go into this one pool room. And there's nobody in there but one guy. In this one guy, his name is Jimmy King. And he's an ex-con and an ex-felon. He knows everybody in the pool world. And he spots us. And he comes over to us and he tells us, here's the deal, boys. I know you're here in town to make money, but you ain't getting past me. If you want to make money, I'm getting 25%. Now I'll steer you around, but I'm getting
1: 25%. He was the only guy in Houston who knew how good they were. And unless they cut him in on their profits, he was going to make sure they couldn't make a game with anyone.
0: Jimmy King was also noted for robbing a pro pool player named Jimmy Wetch. He had duct taped him to a chair in a hotel room after he had steered him around for about three months.
1: They asked Jimmy King to let them sleep on it, and that night they weighed the pros and cons. On the one hand, Houston was the mecca of pool. There was a lot of money to be made there money they couldn't make anywhere else in the country. On the other hand, Jimmy King might steer them around until they won a decent amount of money and then try to kill him. The next day, they told Jimmy they were in.
0: We did partner with him because we knew how much money we could make in that town. It was just unreal. That town was flourishing with pool action. I mean, just crazy. For instance, I we played this Mexican guy, had big money, he owned a bar with one nine-footer. We played about 30 hours, I ended up beating him out of like 20-some thousand. And that was just one score. We played this guy, uh, Chris, I can't remember his last name, but I beat him on the bar table for 25,000 and James beat him for 15,000 on the big tape. We played twin brothers, we beat them, I can't remember their names, but we beat them out of like 30,000. I'm just telling you the big scores, but we would win three, five, 10,000 every single day, but then in between there we'd make 20 or 30. And we probably won three or 400,000 there in Houston in three months.
1: The guys were looking over their shoulders the entire time, keeping tabs on Jimmy King.
0: He loved to do cocaine and, and go to casinos, so he would lose his money all the time. I mean, like he he would go broke all the time and he he would get his 25% and he'd probably go blow it. And we were getting updates on him. Like we weren't stupid, right? Like we're trying to track his moves as he's trying to track our moves. But the problem is he's with us. He knows where we're staying. We don't know where he's at during his off time. There was a hotel room next to our hotel that had been rented out and this entire hotel was dead. Nobody was staying there. All of a sudden it had been rented out. And we had found out about it because we had a clerk, somebody that was working at the hotel, we paid her $100 to tell us if somebody were to get a hotel room on either side of our room. And we had gotten a phone call also that he was planning on robbing us. So we ended up having to leave all of our clothes. We left uh, two queues, a bunch of other stuff, but we always had our money with us. And we never went back.
1: From there, they go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Eventually, though, Scott gets a call from an old friend, Gabe Owen, who's back in Houston and has lost a lot of money and needs Scott's help to win it back. Problem is, the guys he lost it to were no joke.
0: He was playing some pretty powerful Mexican people, cartel people. After I got there, we beat this group of Mexican guys out of a lot of money. When I say a lot of money, I'm in between 30 and 40 grand over probably a 10-day period. And so I'm, like, drained, and I just wanted to have a night off.
1: Scott and a friend of Gabe's named Caleb hit up a little cantina near their hotel to unwind. At the bar, they met a young couple who were fans of pool and said they had heard about Scott Frost.
0: They acted like they'd heard of me, but they wanted their picture with me, and they wanted my autograph and all this hoopla, and so we start drinking with this couple. So another 20, 30 minutes goes by, And wouldn't you know it, this guy says, hey, man, uh, since you're such a great pool player, I think we've got a chance to make a lot of money. And this is where it got weird. He says, I know this guy named Jim Coffey that owns these strip clubs, and I can get
1: you in with him." Scott had heard of Jim Coffey. He was known as a big gambler who'd play money games on the pool table at his strip club. He was a hard guy to make a game with, and there was a long line of hustlers who were trying to figure out how, because the word was, if you made a game with Jim Coffee, he'd go off for a big number. And after a quick phone call, Scott's new friend said it was all set, and Jim was ready to play.
0: So we get in the car. Me and Caleb are in the backseat, and him and this chick are in the front. This guy and this, his wife or fiance, girlfriend, whatever. They're in the front, we're driving, we pull out, we make a left. We're literally a mile down the road, and she starts complaining that her stomach gets upset and that her head's hurting. She starts complaining, and he says, well, what do you want me to do? And she says, just drop me off at my car right here in the shopping center. So now, she's dropped off, I'm sitting in the front seat, and we're back on the road. Now it's just me, Caleb, and this dude. So now, I can't really communicate with Caleb to what i'm feeling because i'd be talking in front of this guy right so i'm just kind of like biting my tongue but everything feels kind of weird so we're going down the road and he turns into this residential area but it's a rough area and then i see this gas station there's one light over this gas station the gas station's freaking closed down hadn't been opened in months pulls in and there's one car in this gas station it's an old one of the big old Cadillacs with the slanted back end four door dark Cadillac and I'm telling you right now it looked like judgment day dude so there's two white dudes six four, six five, 6'5", and cut like shit brick houses dude
1: the stranger got out of the car and went over to shake hands and chat with the shit brick houses at the gas station eventually he motioned for Scott to come out and join him reluctantly Scott got out of the car. He had a bad feeling. Hell, I've got a bad feeling just listening to him tell the story. And what happened next is probably pretty obvious at this point.
0: As soon as I go to shake the first person's hand, the driver of the car that I was in gets out of my sight, kind of creeps around the left behind me. So this dude puts me in a chokehold and somehow, by some miracle, I never lose air but everything just went into slow motion. So the guy puts me into a chokehold, and the next thing I see out of the right corner of my eyes, Caleb going to the ground, and his head flopping like a freaking watermelon on the concrete. So these guys are going through my pockets, and they're expecting the money to be there in my pockets, and in all reality, they're in my shoes. Mm-hmm. I had them flat. I had one rubber band around it, and you can put about 6,000 flat, so it's about you know half an inch or an inch high. They were all pretty fresh hundreds. But anyway, they're kicking me in the face and screaming, where's the fucking money, Scott? Where's the fucking money? And I just never forget what happens next. The dude that's got me in the lock and the chokehold says, go ahead and do him. That's it, go ahead and do him. And I see there's one light, it was one fluorescent light in this gas station. And I see the reflection off that light with a big chrome ass gun. The guy puts the gun to my head
1: Pulls the trigger. Miraculously, the gun doesn't fire.
0: Next thing I know, the guy's looking at the gun, hitting it with his hand. The gun jammed. And that moment changed my life, probably forever. He tries to get the gun working. Couldn't get the gun working, so he pistol whipped me. Pistol whipped me in my right eye, real bad. I got scars to prove it. And the next thing I hear is Caleb in the background crying. He's crying and he's screaming, Scott, they're gonna kill you, they're gonna kill you, give the money up, they're gonna kill you. And the whole thing was that my adrenaline was going so bad that I really didn't realize what was happening when it was happening. So I would have given the money up long ago. But when the gun came out, it happened so quick that I didn't realize that that was happening until after it happened. I didn't even have time to say, here's your money. But after that happened, it was like all the air went out of me. Everything just stopped. And um, I kicked my right shoe off with my other shoe. And I said, it's in my fucking shoe, you whatever. And uh,
1: they got both shoes.
0: They got the money.
1: They called the cops. But the police didn't believe Scott had been robbed of $12,000. I mean, who carries around $12,000 in cash on them anyway? They thought he and Caleb were drunk and had been fighting each other.
0: So they locked me up and questioned me for six hours, finally stitched me up sometime in the morning, and released me with 10 cents in my pocket. I didn't leave my house for a year, just about a year.
1: After the robbery, Scott took stock of his life. Pool had started to blow up on the internet, and through social media and internet forums, players were trading stories about the goings-on in various pool halls, making it so that every pool player in America knew all about every other pool player in America. Hustling pool on the road was no longer a viable career option for a one-pocket virtuoso like Scott the Freezer Frost. But even if it had been, he wasn't so sure he was up for it anymore.
0: I've still got PTSD from, from the robbery. I promise you I do. But not only was I kind of like in hiding because of what had happened to me or I was really jaded by it, but now this internet stuff was happening. So it seemed like my entire course and once again my entire future was changing. And I had to take a deep look inside myself and, and figure out what route I was gonna go.
1: Scott decided he'd try to see what kind of life he could make for himself playing pool in the tournament circuit. But he found that life on the tournament circuit was far different than life on the road as a gambler. For one thing, The hard, cocky image he had developed was an asset as a gambler, but a hindrance to securing sponsorships as a tournament pro.
0: It was really a struggle for a long time. Fortunately, my talent superseded me, and and I did get sponsors, a lot of good sponsors, and I gained a lot of great relationships. But it took a long time. And I'm still, to this day, I still struggle with the hardness of the road.
1: Scott went on to win a host of national titles, including the U.S. Open and the Legends of One Pocket. And even though he was a tournament professional, he still found plenty of opportunities to gamble, even against his idol, Efren Reyes, who was at that time widely considered to be the best all-around pool player in the entire world.
0: I jumped up and played him even. I beat him. And I beat him six more times after that. And the minimum bet was 5000 The most we bet's fifty each. So... That was an accomplishment because he's the best to ever live at the game.
1: Even though Efren and Scott were top tournament pros, gambling was still a big part of their lives. Because even among the top tournament players in the world, there just isn't enough money in the sport to make a good living without having a little action on the side. With Scott Frost, however, a little action was never enough to sate him. Even at the peak of his tournament career, when Scott was well into his 30s, that old road gambler wasn't completely dead. It was still inside him. And in 2010, Scott let it out in a big way.
0: I'm at this big tournament, Mobile, Alabama. It was at a tournament called Breakers. But I'm there, and while I'm in Mobile, I'm getting word that all these guys are in Vegas gambling with this poker player. And I'm like getting all sorts of information like this guy just beat Francisco Bustamante, who's a good friend of mine, another top, top pro from the Philippines, just beat him out of 70,000.
1: The poker player in question was David Pete, who was known in the online poker world by a screen name, Viffer. Just like Scott, Viffer had once been a young pool hall hustling prodigy, but he turned his attention away from gambling on pool to try his hand at poker, which at that time was exploding with the advent of online poker sites. Viffer made millions of dollars at poker, he had never completely let go of his first love and now that he had a lot of money to burn he was challenging all his old pool heroes to play him just like scott viffer had a list
0: and lo and behold viffer calls me and he's like uh well you're the last one to take off you're next i've taken the rest of them down you're the last one why don't you come try and get some and i'm like jesus what what am i gonna do i don't I don't know how I'm going to play this guy, and he ain't going to play nobody unless he's getting the nuts. And, and the nuts means he's getting the best of it.
1: The spot that Viffer was asking for from Scott and everyone else was 18 to 4, which means that Viffer has to sink four balls before the other players sink 18. And with that huge of a handicap, Viffer was laying waste to every pro that played him.
0: So he's beaten all these guys, and he was really pumped up and really confident. But there was one catch. I was playing ungodly. I mean, I don't know what, what had happened to me. Like, I was just in the prime of my career, for sure.
1: Scott teamed up with a couple of other big gamblers who had backed him in the past, and they put together $50,000 for Scott to play Vifer at 18-4. to 4. After some negotiation, they decide on playing 10 ahead for the whole 50 grand, which means they would play until one guy was 10 games ahead of the other guy. Now, keep in mind, there were only 15 balls on the table. So Scott has to run the table, rack them, and still sink three more balls to win. And he has to do this 10 more times than Viffer can. It's a sick, psychotic, insane spot for that much money.
0: They're playing one pocket that potentially could take 30, 40 hours. You can win the first eight games. If I win the next eight games, the score is zero. Nobody is up. We're dead even. You can win the first two. I win the next three. I'm up one. So I've got to get 10 ahead of Biffer in order to win this 50,000. We flipped the coin. I don't even know who won the break. I beat him in an hour and a half or two hours max. I win 50,000 in two hours max, right? I just ran through him like butter. And this was a game that he was beating everybody at. If we were to lose, we were done. We weren't playing anymore. We were taking a $50,000 shot at his bankroll, basically trying to turn a toothpick into a lumberyard. That's what I like to call it. So anyway, he immediately says, bet $100,000. I beat him, make the final ball, looks at me, says, bet $100,000. While all my guys are up on the rail, I don't even look at them. I said, bet. So we play for $100,000. I win that set in like four hours. So that night it's we're done. He quits. I went 150,000. I'm through the moon. Like I'm over the moon. I'm just like freaking on cloud 9. So we go have dinner. We keep all the money together. We don't chop the money up. The next day, we place that for 100,000. So now uh, I'm up 150, looking to be up 250 or 50 winner. If I lose, I'm 50 winner. If I win, I'm 250 winner. I win that set, it takes like five or six hours, which is a pretty good beating. Playing 10 ahead, winning in five or six hours is a pretty good beating. Like You're getting demolished, uh, especially getting 18 to four.
1: Over the next couple of days, they play a few more times and Scott wins $320,000.
0: So he wants to play a set for it all. So we're all preparing for this big set. Freaking like, this is the biggest set of my career.
1: There was one problem, though. Up until now, they'd been playing these sets at a local Las Vegas pool hall with hundreds of people watching and the cash stacked up on the light above the table, as was customary.
0: Money on the wood makes the bet good.
1: But they couldn't really put $640,000 on top of the light. So they agreed to stash the cash in another poker player's safety deposit box in the Aria casino cage.
0: Viffer was so unhappy that he came back there with about $300,000 in 5s, 10s, and 20s. The biggest duffel bags you can get, stuffed full of money. And so the reason he did that is it took us about six hours to count his money before the match. He wasn't happy. And he knew it was going to be draining to count that money before we play. Because the minute that money's up, we're going straight to the pool and playing.
1: This time, however, Scott didn't cut through Viffer like butter. This set was a fucking grind.
0: So we go to the pool room, and we play. Uh, And this one took like 12 hours, 12 or 14 hours, 15 hours, maybe. So I win that set, and man, I mean, jeez. I I can't ever explain what the feeling was like. I I never will be able to explain what that feeling is like. It's probably like doing a line of cocaine from here to San Francisco.
1: But Viffer wasn't finished, and he wanted to keep playing. When a guy that gambles
0: like that gets stuck that much money, he's gonna chase, right? Like he's gonna go all the way in until he's tapped, until he can't borrow no more. And that's just how it is. That's why we didn't leave.
1: So they played on. They even switched from one pocket to nine ball, which was Viffer's better game. But even after giving Viffer a big spot in nine ball, Scott still won.
0: Like, I played unbelievable. And I think that I had had him broke down. By this time, I had him broke down like a 32 Buick. It it was pretty bad. Like, he was beat up. Like, from the feet up, beat up. He was bad. And I just feel like he was worn down. And anything that we did, whether it was uh, tic-tac-toe,
1: hangman, or pool, he wasn't going to win at it. In the end, after several days of playing pool, Scott and his partners had won $700,000 from Viffer. And with all the side action Viffer was taking, the total loss was well over a million dollars. It was one of the most expensive money games ever played. Hell, it might have been the biggest money game in history.
0: It was just unbelievable. It was the funnest, best rush, most natural high I've ever had in my life. And I can't explain what that was like. It made everything that I went through in my life worth it. It wasn't really just the money, it was that I actually made a score like that. It wasn't the money itself.
1: But before Scott left Vegas, he blew off some steam. Now, at this point in the story, I need to warn you that some of you may find what you're about to hear disturbing and difficult to listen to.
0: I start drinking i have like four or five shots back to back to back to back start drinking and sure enough i brought two twenty five thousand dollar chips down with me so what do i do when i start drinking i start shooting dice i'm the best dice player in my own mind so i start shooting dice within two hours probably no exaggeration within two hours maybe an hour and 45 minutes i'm 170 000 loser I'd had the pit boss, the pit boss knew my name, I'd had the pit boss call my hotel room suite and have Erica bring down 50,000 at a time. And uh, this poor girl, she's been through it all with me. <laughs> so she's in her sweatpants, she's tired, she wants to go home, and now she's watching all this money go out the window. And she can't say a freaking word to me because I'm an asshole. And uh, I'm drunk, that's the problem. I start betting the other side. I start betting the don't. It's illegal to have a chair at the dice table. It was so bad they gave me a chair. I sat there for 33 hours. I got it all back but $5,000. And to this day, God is my witness, I've never bet my own money in a casino again. To this day.
1: Today, Scott Frost still plays pool, but he does so mostly in Tempe, Arizona at his own pool hall, Freezer's Sports Bar and Grill, which he opened in 2017 with his partner Jason Chance from back home in Des Moines. It was the realization of a lifelong dream, the final stop on the crazy path he didn't even realize he was on till he was at the end of it.
0: I always told my dad, back when I was a kid, when he gave me those 30 cues to start my own little business, I would begged my dad to buy that pool room for me or to help me go into business. He said, I just wasn't ready, I was too young. So before my father passed, I, I'd always told him, I said, you know, I'm gonna make you proud, one day I'm gonna have a nice business, a nice clean room, pool room, restaurant, food, bar, etc. and I'm not gonna end up being one of these degenerate pool players the rest of my life.
1: They call this game pool, when really it should be called pocket billiards. The name pool used to refer to the pools of money wagered on the games. That's how much this game and gambling are intertwined. The word we once used to refer to the bets is now the word we use to describe the game itself. And they call Scott Frost a hustler, but really he should be called a professional pocket billiards player, a businessman. There are surely still pool players working the road, gambling to eke out a living, searching for that big score that will build their bankroll and take them to the next level. If they exist, they may have to go through Tempe, Arizona, and beat Scott Frost to get there. Or maybe they'll need to lose to him, like he lost to Cornbread Red. Either way, the freezer's waiting for the next go-off kid to either give them a warning or give them a game. Next time on Gamblers, we'll meet the god of gin rummy, Michael Saul. You know, I like to say you can make
0: more money in New York by accident than you can make on purpose anywhere else.
1: Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show was produced by Craig Horlbeck, Noah Malale, and Isaac Lee. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. The sound design was done by Isaac Lee.